Hello and welcome to Leader Talk with Fintan Duffy. On our agenda this week, what is the future for Connolly Barracks? There's walkouts at the local town council. We have an update on St Mel's Cathedral. Also, a new exciting theatre project begins in Longford. And it's almost official. They say the recession is all but over. My guests this week are Father Tom Healy, ADM of the Parish of Temple Michael, RTE journalist Fran McNulty and Sheila Riley, editor of the Longford Leader. Well, we start with the Leader Talk panel this week with some good news. And the good news, uh, Fran McNulty, is that we have uh, green shoots have now turned into a forest of economic recovery. Uh, we're on the road back. The recession's over. Yes, I was being told this from early on this week uh, by various uh, spinners um, for various political parties. And um, it's certainly good news, but what would worry me about it is if we are seeing these green shoots and if we are recovering, uh, then the projections which we were seeing from the Department of Finance that recovery wouldn't happen for some time are way out. Mm. And uh, if they're way out on this score, um, how does that affect everything else? So that would be a point of concern. But it has to be said, if you were in shopping centres in the east of the country, even here in the Midlands, you it would appear to me more people are out and about, more people are tending to shop, so maybe that is a good sign. But how can that be happening when we've over or almost half a million uh, unemployed? I think what you're seeing is the people who aren't unemployed, the people who still are earning money, uh, albeit in some cases reduced, have been saving that money. And maybe we have Christmas over, we're well into the new year, summer beginning, they're tending to spend once again. Like I was listening to the radio today and hearing people tell stories of having to drop VHI payments, uh, drop paying their uh, various other sort of regular commitments that we see. So people are still suffering. Um, but if there are green shoots, if exports are up, imports are up, um, it would appear that uh, on paper, technically, uh, there may be a bit of a recovery. Whether that's filtering down to people on the street, I, I just don't know. All right, and Sheila Riley, uh, as well as that, we had uh, Brian Cowan in a major speech say um, it had nothing to do with him except the good bits, and uh, it was it was great that that isn't, had a nice. Isn't that convenient? Isn't that convenient? And Very the timing was great because the, just on the day, good body stockbrokers came out and said it's all over. Yeah, I mean, basically, you'd have to just be you'd have to take that with like an, a, a lot of skepticism. It has to be said, you know. I mean, there's an element there from from Cowan of protecting him needless to say um, and I suppose it was it's an interesting it, I find it interesting that he said what he said if you like that he came out and kind of you know basically it wasn't me gov type of thing but I, I thought it was interesting the timing of it needless to say with the good bodies um, but also with the fact that you know Elderfield the financial regulator has announced basically about his his bank inquiry his financial inquiries and what he's going to be revealing now one has to wonder in in the coming weeks and months it, you know you'd have to just take the whole lot with it I'm very sceptical, to say the All least. Right. Uh, Father Tom, you're surrounded by non-believers. <laughs> Indeed, yes. I think I'm among them. <laughs> I think I'm among them on this issue anyway. I'd love to think the recession was over and all was well in the world. But, you know, I'm a little bit sceptical. Obviously, I, I hope it is. I'm just very aware of just all the pain that's out there. I mean, for months, if not a year or two, we've been listening to people being desperately caught for money, losing their jobs, being behind in mortgages, not able to face their commitments. And there's a lot of pain and pressure out there and uh, you know your heart goes out to such people and I think I don't think we're out of the woods yet mm. and there was a lot of people making the point that uh, over the, the 10 years of the boom people had turned their back on the church that attendance was attendances were down etc did you notice people coming back to mass going if you like as, yeah, as an obvious example? I, I'm not sure some people say that I 
I'd like to think faith is something a touch deeper than that, you know, mm. that it's just not as simple that when you have money, you don't go, when you're without money, you start mm. attending again. Um, but you might be looking for something more that, you know, maybe the okay. money is... Okay, you know. right, yeah. Probably there has been a, smite, a small turn back, yes. Yeah. What about young people? Are young people still still enthused by the idea of, uh, of the Catholic Church? It's obviously a struggle for us. I know that was part of Archbishop Martin's statement during the week. He says we're not connecting enough, enough with young people. So, I mean, obviously, practice is small among young people. We've tried our best locally here to have some outreach. My colleague, Father Brendan, whom you know, does a lot of good work in that area. But uh, it's a huge challenge, a huge challenge for us to connect mm. and uh, make it all relevant to them. Just as you mentioned, uh, Jeremy Martin there, he, he, he basically was saying that there was strong forces operating within the church to try and keep the story of abuse, um, keep that under the carpet. What did you make of that? I was kind of surprised. I know he's been leading the way over the last year or two and making lots of strong statements, but uh, that came out of the blue and I didn't quite grasp it all in the sense that uh, we're all keenly aware of all the things that have happened in the past. We're, um, we've apologised a number of times and presumably need to continue to do so. It's shocking what has happened and the cover-ups have been shocking. So there's no denying all of that. And I would have thought most priests are keenly tuned into that now and I'm surprised that he considers there are some who are still uh, with their heads in the sand. I know he hasn't made it explicit who he's talking mm. about and some have asked him to kind of name names and so on. So whether he's you know, challenging his colleagues in the hierarchy, I'm not sure. But again, I can only speak about the local scene, really, because it's what I know best. And I can say to you that it's been high on our agenda, the whole issue of child protection for the last couple of years, at least. Is everything in place in this diocese? Well, I would like to think it is. Uh, Finton, again, let's can I talk about the parish primarily? Yep. Because um, it's the one I know best and the one I'm responsible for. Mm -hmm. We have two people who assist us in a safeguarding area. They're Gillian Buckley and Laura Cunningham. They're both social workers. So they're volunteers with us, but they're trained in this area. So our main contact as a parish with young people is probably through the altar serving uh, system. And we've had a number of meetings with parents. We have a whole supervision uh, rota going there. People have got Garda vetting. They've been trained up and they're on the ground. So we're taking it extremely seriously. And I, I know that Bishop Column is very, very committed to child protection as well. And he recently issued a safeguarding document, which I have here. He works with a committee in the diocese mm -hmm. and uh, he's extremely keen that only the best standards are achieved. All right. Uh, Fran McNulty, uh, do you get the sense that at times the uh, hierarchy in this country just can't help themselves when it comes to getting it wrong in public? Yeah, I mean, it's. I would go to Maynooth quite often when the bishops are, are holding their meetings there from around the country, and um, you can certainly see that uh, even within that group of men, um, there are some people with with a certain outlook, like uh, uh, Bishop Mar Archbishop Martin, uh, and some who would have far more conservative outlook. Uh, the last press conference I was at there, we had uh, this was coming out uh, just after a lot of uh, the, the most recent reports were out and, and you had one bishop who said, why is everybody picking on the church? You know, the abuse is occurring within lots of families. Mm. Now, Bishop Jones had a point to make, but it was the way in which it was made. It was the timing which was chosen for making that point. Sometimes I think there is an absolute failure to communicate the message effectively. There's no doubt a lot is being done. But it, it also strikes me as that they don't have a message sometimes, that it's confused, that if it, it's a failure to communicate is one thing, but a clarity of, of message. I, I, I think the only confusion is, um, I don't think there's a bishop in this country that at this point in time 
it doesn't now realise that there is a certain way things have to be done and we need to do it that way. But there appears to be a confusion with using certain language. Mm. And that's uh, even last week, the, the morning uh, after Archbishop Martin's uh, remarks, uh, the Pope was in Portugal and uh, he made comments about evil within the church being even greater um, a greater problem than the enemies from without side. And a lot of commentators were questioning, what exactly does he mean by this? Mm. Um, and I just think there's a lack of clarity sometimes in the message that, that's being put out there. And I know that there's an awful lot at play within an organisation as large as the Catholic Church on the worldwide stage and all of that. But I think sometimes it, it, the message needs to be simple and clear and just bear in mind what's important. And the other thing Archbishop Martin said as well was that... Um, child protection issues need to be on the agenda of every parish pastoral council at every meeting but the question and the point has to be made is how many times does the church need to apologize that that mm. is one question that really does need to be and he does have a point that it needs to be on the agenda and it needs to be right up there but just how many times do we need to see i mean does it make it any different if the church apologizes every sunday at mass or every month at mass for what has happened mm. to the victims or to the survivors of abuse i don't think it makes all that much difference okay we must uh, move on uh, fr from that topic Could uh, I borrow one moment oh, absolutely, just, just yeah. to mention that there is you know a national board for safeguarding it's headed up by a man called ian elliot who mm -hmm. happens to be an northern presbyterian interestingly and he is charged with responsibility for getting us up to the highest standards. He wants to make us a flagship organisation and part of his role also will be to monitor uh, standards going forward. So like that independent body is there and they and, are doing and their work. And you're saying that's designed to give people confidence that things have changed f f from a management and a structural point of view? Well, I'd like to think so, Fintan, yeah. yeah, certainly, yeah. Okay. But you have to say, though, as well, that, I mean, one of the points that Dermot Martin raised during the week, he talked about the dark forces, which is, I think, something that a lot of, it had resonance with a lot of people because it's very strong use of language. Mm. And mm. as things go on, you can't help but feel that Archbishop Martin is becoming a very isolated figure, even more so than previously, um, because he's making these statements. And, you know, I, I live in fear of the day he gets a promotion, and I use that in inverted commas, to Outer Mongolia or somewhere like that, because I can, see that, mm. I can see that happening as a result of what he's saying and the points that he's raising. Okay. I uh, want to uh, tackle some of the, the local issues. And I, I, for me personally, one of the, the, the big issues that has emerged and the big stories over the last week or so has been the decision on Connolly Barracks. Sheila, you ran the story in the, in the Longford Leader. This is an opportunity to get a once-off piece of uh, real estate in, in, in Longford Nine Town acres. to deliver something for generations to come. Do you have any confidence it's going to happen? This is it. You know, what we don't want and what the town doesn't need is another white elephant. I mean, I think we can all agree on that. The, the Connie Barracks property has already been taken by the VEC or they've taken part of it. Garda uh, Shikona have taken another part of it. So there's nine acres left. And now what are they going to do with it? So the idea is we know we want it, but we don't know what we're going to do with it. Now, the suggestions I've seen so far are things to do with tourism and um uh, an artistic hub and some sort of centre of excellence for tourism actually I think was mm. the, yeah um, and things like that are great but they fill me with fear because I just don't see that becoming a reality and I don't think the money is going to be made available for it now there is going to be a feasibility study done in relation to that so you'd have to say that let this not be just some worthless mm. document let it be meaningful and that it can actually come up with a practical use for the barracks but can I can I say as a starting point one council official one VEC official, the CEO of the Enterprise Board, 
the Garda superintendent and eight councillors on the, the on, they are the subcommittee. Yeah, it's just not exactly inspiring. That to me is part of the problem here. I think if Shilly, you refer to a, a hub for the arts, I think we're sitting in it. Mm. Uh, in backstage theatre and centre mm. for the arts. I think this should be and is the centre for the arts. We don't need another centre for the arts in Longford because you run the risk Absolutely. of it becoming that white elephant. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that uh, until there is a group in place with as broad a representation of all the various aspects and of life in Longford, and a vision, yeah. yes, yeah. and a concrete plan of what this could become, then you will end up with the risk that y- you look in Longford and we have the Mal. Uh, as, as a park, as an amenity mm. with a leisure centre and a pool. A superb facility, the like of which many towns would love to have. So we have that covered, we have the arts covered. Let's, let's look at what we need uh, before we decide what we're going to use it for. One of the very early proposals was to develop some sort of an activity centre that could be used. I mean, it's an army barracks. It's mm. perfect to develop. As some, uh, let the local authority drive it and then uh, do what they do in the north of Ireland. Develop these facilities, put a plan in place, and then just let it out and let somebody who knows about running a business like that come exactly. in and take it over. Exactly, and run it as a viable project because this mm. is the problem. What we don't want is some worthy but dull uh, that yes. event or project that nobody wants to go to and that yeah. nobody utilises, or that maybe you send up the odd, you know, stray tourist who gets lost in the town. That's right, the and can't get in town, because the g- gates are locked. Yeah, yeah. Or we, have, like we, have, that. we have Carrigan Shannon swamped every weekend with hens and stags. Maybe that's a aspect of business that, that Longford doesn't exactly want. But maybe there's a feed off from that for it to, uh, to use it as some sort of a. It could be a. Festival venue, it could be yes. a, a somewhere where there could be all sorts of enterprises run out of it. Community groups could use the facilities to have meetings, to do their <laughs> Christmas parties, whatever it may be. Father Tom, uh, there it is. It's sitting there in a in in a super location in town, and we could do it. We could we could do it something of real quality there, couldn't we? We certainly could. Yes, I have memories of being down there years ago when the army used to put on open days, and I was very impressed by the whole space. There are tremendous pitches there tennis courts, a gym, lovely old historic buildings. It's in the heart of the town. Again, I don't have the answer, but certainly mm. there is great potential to, yeah. to make Even good amenities there. Even if you take all the buildings, uh, for a third-level uh, facility of some sort. You, yes. you, Fran, you've seen the thing in Cavan, the, the College for Further Studies there. Look what that has become. Using facilities that you wouldn't expect You wouldn't expect put a dog into it. But also, to, to say that, uh, like, there's a great loss with the army gone out of Longford. I can remember many Christmases going up to the army barracks for casa parties, for the open days, the barbecues mm. during the summer. Yeah. Mm. Superb. And we've lost that now as, as a me- as social function that the barracks had. And perhaps we should take it back and, and try and employ it mm. in some respect. Father Tom says the answer is to that question is really, really difficult. Um, but I think if you have a group driving it with a very broad, wide knowledge of yeah. what's needed. That, that committee, and n- no harm to anybody on it, but that committee of all those councillors and etc., that's not the answer, Sheila, is it? No, it absolutely isn't the answer. And I mean, you know, like, and as you say, no harm to anybody on the committee. Mm. It, it's not, they're all there with the best of intentions. But the reality is, for a lot of these things to work, you need the people with the skills. Like, that's yeah. just the bottom line. Um, and, you know, say I go to conferences all the time with newspapers and you see people talking about the internet as the future and you have these people, these, you know, elderly gentlemen sitting around in suits talking about the internet and you don't have anybody under maybe the age of 25 talking about it. So, to my mind, that's what we are replicating here yeah. when 
I see what's happened with this subcommittee for the barracks and when I think of the level of talent and creativity around Longford that's no joke there is a serious pool of talent here and um, I know that there are people out there who could come up with some amazing ideas mm -hmm. for the barracks mm -hmm. and that's just been, we're wasting an opportunity here I just don't know what we're going to look at in 10 years time and see in Connolly Barracks I would be afraid of my life that we would look and see nothing all right okay um it's one that's we'll follow with interest because I'd love to see something really special uh, mm -hmm. developed there um okay I want to talk about uh, Aftershock um, a series of programs run by the state broadcaster RTE uh, over um, recent nights and um, Fran McNulty I, I know you, you can't speak on behalf of RTE nor, nor would I ask you to but um, really it was a, a survey of the wreckage wasn't it it was it, it was really showing us where we have come from and where we are. It was also dealing with the realities in a very human sort of a way. And as, I mean, the first I really knew of it was when I saw promos begin to appear uh, and ads. Um, so as I say, any views I have are my own. But I think what it, it managed to do was tell some of the stories which remarkably haven't been told up to now. Mm. Even uh, when I sat down and watched the one which dealt with some estates around Longford, and I was shocked. I knew there were difficulties. I knew there were problems. But when you see people standing on their doorstep crying, um, d talking about the real human impact of what has happened, it was really quite In shocking. In the middle of what is effectively a building site. Yes, exactly. Mm. I mean, I've, I've driven around these housing estates. But also, as, as somebody who's, who's born and bred in Longford, I was, the next day, I, I was in Dublin, in RTE, and everybody was coming over to me saying, my God, I never knew Longford was so bad. Mm. And people had this view of this. And you had all, we were like a freak show where a, a minibus came to tour around mm. the county mm. to look at all these estates. And I just think, oh, is this the price? Is this the fallout of the decisions that have been made in terms of development and, and tax incentives? It's just really appalling. And the question is, where does it end? Because you can't, well, there's talk about bulldozing housing estates. But, like, people have have mortgages out, lifetime mortgages out on mm. houses in these developments, you really just have, what is going to happen? And it's it's quite devastating to see it. And I think the series, from beginning to end, posed a lot of really good questions and managed to summarise and take stock of, of where we're at as a country. And whilst you sat down and you looked and you thought, you know, here's an half an hour of depression or an hour and a half of depression, and then you went into discussion, here's two hours of depression. Mm. I, I think really it was a worthwhile exercise because nobody has managed to do what that whole series did, just take stock of where we are and discuss mm. where we could go. And Father Tom, to see Longford um, portrayed in such a way and people in Longford in such a dire strait because they did the right thing, they tried to get on the property ladder, they took their gamble, they came to Longford to live, they are obviously not from here originally, most of them, they're working elsewhere, but they gave Longford a chance and this is what they get. It's hard luck, you'd have to, your heart would go out to them, you know, mm. and again it's the whole social impact of all of this, I mean not only do you need a house, you need a neighbourhood, you need a community, you need schools and all of these things, and uh, I mean I know all these estates well, and I'm from Ruski, and out there I can see states too where there are grass growing out of houses and uh, it's shocking what we've done to our countryside but these people are caught in a tough situation mm -hmm. and I don't know the answer either you know. Well do, do you think they should get some special treatment uh, to get out of it people who you know in the normal course of events went and took a mortgage and took a chance and just came off on the, on the wrong side of it do you think there should be something done for these people uh, specifically? It would be a great thing if that could happen but mm. we are, is the money there in these days you know mm. it must be awful to be living in one house and to be surrounded by 50 that are half empty you know yeah. no pavements no lighting or, or no Sheila, Sheila Riley the, the other thing about living in these estates is that you're living there with your 350,000 euro mm. mortgage the guy next door moved in two years later and he's on 220 
Well, this is it. That's market forces, and there's not really a lot you can do about that. That could happen at any stage, but it's worse for the people, I've, I think, who are living. Negative equity is terrible, but if you're home and in a lot of cases you hope you can work something out with the bank, that's not actually uh, diminished in any way. It is a terrible situation for people to find themselves in, and I have to say that anybody who bought a house in Longford in the last five years, as I did myself, is living in negative equity, whether they like to acknowledge that or not. But the other problem, the problem I would have is for the people who are, the, you know, that they're living in the one house that's occupied mm. and they're surrounded mm. by the 20 houses that are unoccupied. That, to my mind, is the situation that needs to be rectified first. And that's where bring in the bulldozers, I say, as little, quick as you there's can. There's little point waiting on the council to come in no, and take over the these estates. No, because the council can't afford yeah. this. And, you know, and it is unrealistic to expect the council to to bear the burden of this. Now, that's not to say that there are no questions to be asked of the council. There are a lot of questions to be asked, particularly in relation to how developments that are effectively in the middle of the field, in the middle of the countryside, got mm. planning permission for, you know, as I say, for developments, basically, not just for one-off houses. We were listening to people ranting and raving about one-off houses and every now and then, and then you that turn around and you see... was a major political issue yes. on the floor of the Dáil every night. Yeah, but you see, the reality about the one-off houses is it's all right when you're standing away from it, but if, you, if you're if you living down here, this is the culture, this is all we've ever done. We've lived in one-off houses. Mm. That's what country people were reared in. That's what works, you know, that's And what that's works. why it I live in a one-off house. My neighbours down the road live in a one-off house. This is it. But it's a community. We may be, there may be a quarter of a mile in between us, but it's yeah. a community. That's a really good point, Fran, because there are people living in estates in this town and they're living, like, yards from yes. each other and they don't know each other, whereas I don't, the, we have that fabric, if you like, that one-off house... Is that's where we have come from, if you like, mm. and we were forced, if you like, into these villages, which is kind of a faux village, if you know what I mean, because it's an estate on the edge of a village. In a lot of times, in a village, say in Drumlish, where I live, where the infrastructure can't cope with the houses, you know, or they're, they're just basically it's creaking from month to month. Mm. I mean, there's times in Drumlish. I have lived at this stage in Drumlish for four years, and there has been times when I've been without water and electricity, which oh, is something that never happened to me when I lived in Mullerhorn. Warzone. <laughs> Could yeah. I just say, yes, I never sir. quite understand the argument for knocking good houses. You know, they have been built of materials that can last. I don't get the argument for bulldozing them down. There well, are still people on waiting lists in this town, there's you know? There's two things there. First of all, a lot of them aren't good. I'm not, obviously, not saying all of them aren't, but a lot of them are, we'd have to say some of them are not good. The quality is terrible. And if you're talking to people out there, like there's, as somebody said to me at one stage, if you close the door in, in number four, you know, the whole of number six shakes. Mm. So those need to be addressed. And any of them that are half finished for the last number of years are just ruined now. Absolutely, absolutely ruined. ruined yeah. yeah. And they don't seem, you're talking about a huge amount of money to go and bring them to the standard for yes. people to live in them that mm. are on the waiting list. You're talking an absolute, you know, Who's fortune. going to do it? Who's going to run the, the estate? You can't yeah. do it. Then at the same time, you can't just bring in a bulldozer and throw a bit of topsoil over a few houses and hope that you're going to turn it back into agricultural land that isn't going to happen either because I mean that's just not the way land works mm. and all the rest it's it's not there's definitely no simple solution to this but I do think there is definitely a case for knocking some of those estates they're a blight on the countryside of this county and right. this whole region okay we're sitting uh, here today in a space in backstage uh, theater which uh, Fran McNulty you're going to explain to us now exactly uh, where we're sitting, what, what is this space and what do you and your group intend to do with it? This is a space, Hinton, that very few theatres, even big theatres like the Abbey in Dublin don't have. It's a purpose-built rehearsal space. So the space we're in is bigger than the stage in the auditorium. So 
theatre companies can come in here, they can mark out the stage area, they can exactly rehearse, they can set up lights, they can decide exactly how their production is going to work based on their work here without taking up the valuable space of an auditorium. Like it's half a million euro of an investment in Longford and you're going to have theatre companies from all over the country coming and working in this space. And what a group of people here uh, linked with the theatre have decided to do is to make use of this space, to develop it and to open up the theatre to people from all over the region. As we've set up a, a new project, it's called the Canal Studio Project, named after this studio that we're sitting in today. And what we're going to do is, using professional theatre staff, professional administration, we're going to run a project which will involve amateur actors. So amateur actors from all over the region, within an hour, an hour and a half of Longford, will be able to come here uh, in a couple of weeks' time, audition for Philadelphia Here I Come, which we're staging in October. Mm -hmm. And during that, Noel Strange, well known to many Longford people, will be directing it. And it's a very traditional Brian Friel play, but Noel has a, a brilliant take on it. It will be a super. I, I know, knowing Noel, it will be a superb production. So this is an opportunity for actors from all over the region to come in here um, to work with Pork McIntyre from uh, from a, mm -hmm. a, a, a huge... Uh, uh, background in, in drama and professional theatre and has many, many superb productions under his belt. He will workshop with the cast, he will workshop with Noel, will develop the play throughout the weeks and months ahead and then in October eventually stage it. So it's a good opportunity for people and anyone who wants to get involved should just contact the theatre. But on a wider scale this will not be only be used for that project, it's a rehearsal space and down the line a performance space as well for various gigs, theatre in the round, stuff like that. Mm. A huge uh, bonus, a huge investment for Longford. And uh, I think many people don't realise we're only a couple of weeks open here um, and we have, the, we have the drama group, we have the backstage theatre group, which has a, a very long history in Longford and it's building on that. It's bringing, spreading amateur dramatics and what people who are members of backstage can avail of here, spreading that out right around the region. And I can tell you, it's a far cry from staging a play in the ballroom up in Slashers or at the back of Peter Kelly's pub on Main Street well, many no, years good ago. Enough <laughs> you when you <laughs> You're still in very well there, Fran. I'm tempted to come out of retirement. I was in an old boys' school and we put on a production of My Fair Lady in 73, but <laughs> that's all I'm prepared to declare. Uh, I, I actually started that one as well. I, I wasn't worried. At least you went to yeah. a mixed school. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't Excellent. shaving at well, the time. Well, <laughs> We'll sign you up a little bit later, uh, Tom. Sheila, uh, good, good initiative. Uh, another sign that, um, I suppose, dramatics and all of that side of thing is well and alive in, in Longford. Oh, yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, this is this is only a good news story, which is great, and it's great to be reporting on it on any level, and it's a fantastically ambitious project as well in terms of bringing all the drama, you know, that level of amateur dramatics here. You know, you're, you've seen it all around the region, and we have, you know, some fantastic theatre groups around this area. And we're just kind of seeing this is the next step. It's a natural progression, if you like. And again, we're going back to, we talked about the Connie Barracks earlier on. Mm. You're talking about, some people had the vision. That's why we're sitting in this space, because yeah. somebody actually had the vision and they've seen it. And that's what we need to apply to Connie Barracks. All right. Um, Tom, I want to turn to you, um, finally, just to wrap up on, or I'll come back to one more item before we go. Um, St Mel's Cathedral, we're looking at it every day. Well, now the, the, the shuttering has gone up around the, the, the front of it, so it's hard to see what's going on. But... Um, what is the state of play at the moment with, with the restoration? Where are we? Where are we? Well, I suppose we're just four months on from the fire. It's been a chaotic springtime, as you might imagine. Early on, there was a huge amount of shock to be taken on board. The relocation down to the college was a project, a big project in its own right. So thankfully, we're up and running quite well there. With the cathedral itself, the focus these months has been making the building safe. So, you know, they had to put up hoarding, uh, prop walls and windows with steel, 
Uh, it's called wind bracing. Some walls have been steel, uh, held in steel together. They're putting on a temporary roof at the moment. It's also been cleared out under the direction of a conservation architect so that any materials that are useful are retained and so on. Mm -hmm. Alongside that, um, we have put together a small project committee and we've interviewed for project managers. And we made an appointment this week. We've appointed interactive project managers. They're headed up by a lady called Joan O'Connor and her understudy is Niall Maher. So they're a Dublin-based project management firm and their task will be to uh, bring the project forward from here. The next item is to form a design team. We will need many, many skills to take on a project of this size. A conservation architect, a stone expert, mechanical, electrical engineers, mm. structural engineers, and so on. So w you know we're, we're we're progressing slowly. The bishop says it's better get it right than get it fast. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's a massive project. It's probably going to take up to five years at least, and uh, it's a very complex, unusual, difficult project. Right. So but we're the moving. The the two things people and generally the, the what you hear in the community there are two questions. Number one. Uh, when will it, when will it be when will it be fixed? I suppose is the thing. Wh yes. When will we be back in? So yeah. you're talking here, uh, five years time. Is that a reasonable? Well, you know, I meet people down the street and they say to me, "Well, when are you starting?" Yeah. So I suppose I can understand if you're not involved, you just wonder why we aren't starting yeah. now. But you have to appreciate it's a 170 year old historic building. It's been absolutely gutted inside. It doesn't look too bad on the outside. The pillars inside are absolutely uh, cracked and spalling and breaking up in every manner. So we have major questions to face about how we design it for the future, all kinds of engineering questions and so mm. on. So I don't anticipate that we'd have a builder on site at least within a year and a half or two right. years. And th the other question is, and uh, just for clarity, what caused the fire? What caused the fire? Okay. I'm not an engineer, but yeah. I'll try and give you my best understanding of it. Obviously, forensic guys were brought in mm. and they have produced a report. So the heat was run long and hard on Christmas Eve. We had many yes. people in for confessions all day long. We were anticipating midnight mass. It was extremely cold. So there's an old chimney, obviously, there, 170 years old. And my understanding is that there would have been debris on that chimney, old caked debris for there for decades, that it somehow sparks, uh, it sparked. And as long as the heat was on, there was no problem. That went up into the chimney. Apparently, when the heat was switched off around midnight or so, uh, oxygen then moved in and ignited the sparks, and they became a flame. Now, alongside that, there were two inspection hatches in the sacristy, and one of them had been repaired 30 or 40 years ago and I think it weakened and the flame came through that inspection hatch mm. and into a wardrobe where the vestments were and that's the telling of it you know wow so simple yes and, and yes, and yes tragic so and devastating yeah that's right. okay um just to wrap up um Sheila Riley you have a great story um of a walkout from the town council on the, on, on the website high drama as usual so uh, tell us more well this happened at Longford Town Council meeting earlier on this week when um, Councillor Tony Flaherty tried to raise the matter, uh, he basically he tried to answer um, comments made by uh, former Councillor Seamus Butler, who is now the ch uh, President of the Chamber of Commerce in Longford, as we know. And um, there has been an ongoing spat, if you like. Basically, the town councillors um, raised the matter, criticised the Chamber, and criticised Seamus Butler in the Chamber basically a couple of weeks ago at a previous town council meeting. Then Seamus Butler came back and he uh, refuted their allegations and then also threw in a few of his own. Um, and in the best in the best of all Irish responses. So basically Tony Flaherty wanted to respond again to Seamus Butler's comments and um, 
the mayor of the meeting, the mayor who's the chair of the meeting would be uh, Brendan Gilmore, the independent mayor, and he wouldn't allow Tony Flaherty mm. to speak in relation to it. So um, Tony made a number of attempts, I believe, to, to try and get his word in, and this wasn't allowed, this was ruled out of order, so basically Tony Flaherty got Stormed up and out. left Stormed chamber, out of bringing the, the door with him, I believe, with a bang. Right. So that would be okay in the grand scheme of things, except for later on in the meeting, um, the county mayor, Peggy Nolan, who's a councillor, mm-hmm. obviously also, town councillor also, she raised the matter in a different way. She responded to Seamus Butler saying that she was identifying herself as the, sh- as the councillor the who shopper been shopping the in the north. Yeah. Yes. And um, she, so obviously then she, was, she spoke about the matter and in speaking about the matter was, you know, was allowed to finish her sentence, which obviously Tony mm. Flaherty hadn't been allowed to earlier on. And uh, now is where the row has emerged. And basically Tony Flaherty is looking for, is seeking an apology from the mayor uh, for allowing Peggy Nolan to basically finish her sentence and uh, for not allowing him to speak. And uh, Tony Flaherty has said that he will not attend any more meetings that this mayor is presiding However, however, however here's your punchline. Well, I mean, Brendan Gilmore's tenure as mayor is up next month, so he's only one more meeting left. But having said it. that, you know... Uh, Tony Flaherty feels he should have been given his, his time mm. to speak, that it was understanding orders he should have been allowed to. Fran McNulty, doesn't it make you sleep well at night to know that local democracy is in such good hands? Just have one thing to say, I'd rather be looking in than looking out. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, Tom, uh, just to, to finish with you, I suppose all this um, stuff is going on um, down in the shopping centre and all of that. Uh, we, we have a lot of issues in, in Longford that is causing much division and much... Uh, much argument um, I suppose from the church's point of view you have a big debate to have too about what happens to the cathedral o- over the coming years too don't you certainly I mean we're living in historic times you might say really it was founded in 1840 so it's 170 years old it's going to last for hundreds of years the walls and steeple are fine so this is a, an amazing time really that we have now to redesign it redevelop it we will have a great duty to talk to the people of the parish and the diocese to take their views on board as we try to adapt it for the generations to come. Mm, and hope you don't get any walkouts while you're doing it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, to Father Tom, to Fran McNulty, and also to Sheila Riley, thank you very much for being with us today. And that's Leader Talk for this week. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email leadertalkpodcast at gmail.com. All your latest news and sports updates are always available at longfordleader.ie. And don't forget, you can now download this podcast through iTunes. We're back online on Friday, May 28th. So until then, from Fintan Duffy, it's bye-bye.